From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the lives behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. We are all transitioning all the time. That's what we do. That's what life is. There aren't many places where we aren't boxed into strict categories. For English singer-songwriter C.N. Lester, music has always provided a safe space where these restrictions don't apply. Raised in London by a family that encouraged them to think outside traditional gender roles, CN, who is genderqueer and uses the pronoun they, grew up to be a committed activist. As well as co-founding the Queer Youth Network and Britain's first gay-straight alliance, CN has written a memoir called Trans Like Me, A Journey for All of Us, which is a must-read for all trans people and those who want to understand them better. Now they run a queer performance night in London that has the salient motto, Don't Make Assumptions. C.N. Lester, what is feminism to you? Feminism to me, I think, should aspire to be a doing word rather than a being word. So rather than thinking of feminism as a club that has hard borders and entry requirements, I prefer to think of feminisms as tools in my toolkit. And my goal is to dismantle misogyny. And so what tools can I use to really make sure that that happens for everybody, not just some people? Excellent. We'll pick up some of that later, but I'd like to go back to the beginning. You've said of your family that you came from somewhat of a traditional background and somewhat not. What was your family like? They are all very much free thinkers and people who don't like sort of limits around what other people could be. It didn't seem radical to me growing up that my parents didn't have set gendered ideas for me and my brother, but I think when I talk to other people about their childhoods, it is perhaps more unusual than I thought at the time. Um, but there was never any idea that my brother and I would be differentiated by gender or that our ambitions or our vulnerabilities would be curtailed in any way. So we were both encouraged to cry and both encouraged to talk about our feelings, uh, both encouraged to aim for the pinnacle of, of any career that we would want to aspire to. And that could be any career. You know, it was an idea that one of us would have a, a different sort of uh, career trajectory than the other one. Um, there was an awful lot of emphasis on being yourself, and I think I can really thank my mother for that. She worked as a counsellor, and uh, she's done a lot of, sort of community support and a lot of lay chaplaincy. So she was really good at getting us to talk through our feelings and sort of explore who we were and sit with a sense that we didn't always have to know who we were in terms of fixed categories, but it was okay to be an evolving person. That's a nice idea because childhood is nothing but an evolution, really. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, so there was always this idea of, you know, what are you learning today and, and how are you going to grow? And I didn't get the sensation that I was limited in how I could grow. I mean, I, I definitely did by society at large, but at home there was a real sense of playfulness around who we could be and also just wonder, for want of a better word, you know, so all these books on the walls and all these heroes and heroines and this sense of like, wow, what am I going to be when I grow up? So your home life was very interesting and full of wonder, but of course you did have to fit into a bigger society. Yeah, um, and I think like most gender non-conforming kids, it's it's pretty awful out there. I mean, it's it's getting better, but I think, you know, teenagers listening now will will still be having an appalling time for the most part. Um, and I think it's little ways and it's big ways. So there are just small ways that you're pushed out of social groups. You're told that you're not normal, you're teased, you're sort of mocked for how you present yourself, how you walk through the world. And then there are bigger ways, sort of, you know, particularly problems with teachers and, and problems with systemic bullying and a sense of alienation. And 
you know, deliberate exclusion, which is, I think it's very hard as an adult to make sense of it. And it's even harder when you're younger. And, you know, from my experience anyway, I think a lot of young people have a very highly developed sense of justice. This is or this is not fair. And suddenly when the world is being so unfair and the only reason why that you can tell is because you are doing something wrong and who you are is intrinsically wrong, according to these people, it's a hard situation to live through. Was there a moment where you realised that you didn't match what society might have expected from a small child? I think there was a more evolving sense. And again, huge thanks to my family. I think a lot of it was the sense that other people were wrong, which um, is a is a tremendous gift. I mean, I, certainly I think any any young person of any gender coming from a very equal home life. The first time I think I experienced sexism as a young child, I was, my mind was just blown. And I couldn't understand how adults were allowed to do that. I mean, that just, again, that that sense of absolute fury at the injustice of it. Do you remember what that was? Yes, it was going to see a family friend and it was an elderly relative and she was giving all the boys preferential treatment and she was putting aside extra dessert for them. And it's such a little thing, but it was, you know, boys deserve the best. And I was just standing there thinking, you know, like ready to square <laughs> up in my little childhood way. Um, and, and again, little situations like that and going to school and, and seeing that the boys were allowed to get away with all kinds of violence and the girls were told to be, you know, nice little young ladies. And I just wanted to kick things and chuck things over because I was so angry about it. And, you know, very lucky that I had the parents I had. I could go home and explain it and they would say, yes, it's wrong. And it's okay for you to be angry. And, you know, actually, this is feminism. There's a big history of people being angry about this. And, you know, you should go read about them. So that was, um, I'm hugely thankful to my parents. Anytime, Anytime I was confronted with something, they usually had a reading list. So, and again, I remember reading for the first time when I was, I think, 10, about Oscar Wilde's imprisonment for for homosexuality and sort of saying to my father, you know, what? And him going, yeah, this is the history of decriminalization of homosexuality. And me going, what? And him going, yeah, it's pretty bad. I love it. Problem solving by research. Yes. And, um, you know, I think that's continued to this day. So it's my parents to blame for that. (laughs) So getting into adolescence, that's the time where people traditionally do all of their soul searching and kind of plant their flag in their own identity and make all sorts of declarations. Mm -hmm. How did that play out for you? There are interesting ways of talking about being trans and trans is this huge umbrella term and there are so many different ways of being within that and I don't want to be prescriptive for other people's journeys and other people's ways of being. I think for me it kind of came down to, to two things. One, the whole sexed body thing and this is something, you know, I think a lot of trans people are very familiar with is your body is just suddenly like but that's not my body. And I, I'm trying to, when you try and explain that sense of gender dysphoria, it often gets lumped in with a sense of maybe I'm just a bit unhappy with my body. And it's really not the same thing at all. The best way I can describe it is that your mind knows what your body should be. And then the body in reality doesn't fit with what your brain knows is there. And it's really dislocating. So I definitely had this sense of, okay, what what is going on here? Because I'd never heard about, you know, why that might be. I thought I was just going mad. I think increasingly as well, the more I was confronted with society's gendered expectations and and gender stereotypes and gender depression, I then suddenly started to realise people would talk about feeling like a woman or feeling like a man. and, And they would talk very much in terms of how they related back to this system. And I just didn't get it. Yeah. At all. It, it, it was just fundamentally very confusing. 
Um, and so I think that's why I loved the term genderqueer. You know, there's yep. like this idea that you could just sort of look at gender with your head tilted to one side. I was like, oh, maybe that's where I am. It's true that there is a kind of quite cliched idea about trans development, mm-hmm. you know, that that at some point in your adolescence you realise that your body is wrong, as you describe, mm. but then you kind of pick a side. Yeah, and some people absolutely have a sort of self-journey towards saying, I'm a woman, I'm a man, but more people than you would think sort of go, hmm, maybe no, <laughs> and... I came out as sort of queer and Mm -hmm. I I didn't really, it was very hard trying to find words. I've been struggling to find words. I guess, you know, started talking to my parents. So I had a big talk with my mom when I was 12 or 13 saying, I just, I have no idea what's going on. And she said, well, whatever, whatever it is, we love you, which was amazing. And any parents listening, that's kind of all you need to say, (laughs) you know, whatever, we love you. But trying to make sense of who I was, there was just nothing in the media there were sometimes these very sensationalized and very cruel caricatures of trans people, but they were written in such a way it was very hard to locate yourself in that. Um, because Can you was, give me an example of that? It was always sort of, you know, uh, this person knew forever, and it, it referred to, let's say, a trans woman. They would always refer to her as really a man, you know, and, and this very cruel, they'd have a very cruel picture and very cruel captioning, and it would be sort of, this man has had a sex change, and now he thinks that he's a woman. And it was so regressive and it was so reminiscent of the bullying that I was experiencing. I think it just, it didn't make me feel like I'd found other people like me. It made me feel like I'd found other people who would bully me, (laughs) another way that I would be bullied. It was was only until I found material written by trans people and by LGBT people for each other that I started to recognize myself. And I was very Again, very lucky. I had access to amazing libraries. I had access to Gaze the Word Bookshop in London, which is one of the most beautiful bookshops in the world. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, And Alison Bechdel, who I think people know maybe now as the writer of Fun Home, she did this amazing series called Dykes to Watch Out For. And it had been serialized online uh, in a website that was one of the first things that came up when I sort of searched like transsexual (laughs) bisexual you know like what um and it followed a group of lesbian friends but they had trans friends as well and they had bi friends and suddenly i was like wait what and they were referencing these two writers kate bornstein and leslie feinberg so i with my mom's permission ordered on the brand new amazon a book by leslie feinberg uh stonebridge blues and i ordered a book by kate bornstein my gender workbook Bornstein is a very positive writer and there was a sense that you don't have to pick a side, you don't have to fit into a category. If you can't fit into a category, you can make your own category. And if, you know, if you want to do this, do that. And if you're hurting someone, don't hurt someone. But if you're not hurting anybody, feel free. And it was terrifying because, you know, I read that book and thought, wow, okay, well, I can't pretend that I'm not. (laughs) You know, I know who I am. Um, But it was such a gift as well. It's interesting too because in deciding that you're not going to fit into a category and that you're going to create a category for yourself, Mm. the next step obviously is to think about the infinite possibilities of what that could be. I mean, there is this essential tension for all of us between finding words which are useful as descriptors of our own lives and 
boxing ourselves in or being boxed in by other people. Um, and a phrase which I've loved for a long time, which I've heard many trans people talk about, is that words should be signposts, but they shouldn't be destinations. Hmm. So you're just, you're, you're saying to someone, you know, if I say I'm trans, you know, that does not tell you who I am or what I like to drink in the morning or, you know, what my favorite piece of piano music is. It, it tells you a little bit about how I have been discriminated against for being gender nonconforming, about how society has set these really rigid boundaries for all of us, but I don't think they should be used um, as essentialist terms. I get very upset when people think that if we use words to describe our current situation, that means how we're saying people should always be. And I always think that words like trans or cis, which is the antonym, they're just these really blunt words to try and describe a society which puts us into categories. And the more Soraya Munro, um, an amazing trans writer, talks about gender plurality, and the more that we expand, the more that we start talking and using more and more descriptors, the more we realise that the fixed categories are a bit of a joke and that we can build uh, a freer future for everybody, really. Music has always played a big part in your life. Yes. You trained as a classical pianist, yes, but then I did. injured your wrist and couldn't yeah, pursue I, that. No, I can still play, but only a very, very basic way. And there was there was a very horrible year where uh, I was sort of told that I might never regain the use of my right hand. So that was that was rough. <laughs> that was very rough. How did you hurt your wrist? I fell off a horse. I was being bullied at school for, you know, being different and all the popular kids. You know, this is this is UK, so you know the popular kids in London would go out in to pony Surrey, clubs. yeah, and go out to pony clubs. Um, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, oh, I'm gonna ride horses too, and I fell off, and I broke all the bones in my wrist, and it was terrible. Then sadly, had a doctor who didn't believe that there was ongoing problems. So by the time it was caught, there was just a lot of damage. So had various different bone fragments removed and then ligaments and, and tendons had been torn and need to be pinned back in place and then a lot of rehab. And I took too much time, you know, either in hospital or, or lying at home on painkillers when I, you know, should have been training. So I retrained as a vocalist. How did you negotiate that career shift? Um, I'd always sung and it was always something I wanted to do as a secondary pursuit. The thing that made it very hard is that voices do become incredibly gendered and particularly in opera opera is not always but in a large part a very conservative industry um, so I certainly experienced my share of I say transphobia but again for these people it's not so much that they look at you and say you are trans and therefore I'm going to discriminate against you and neither do they look at you and say you are in my world gay they, they look at you and say you're different so I think queer phobia maybe would be the they didn't really care who I was it was just that I look different and they didn't want that around I worry that in my heart of hearts I'm still more of a pianist because there is something so magical about that instrument it's just you know it, you sit down behind it it's like you melt into it it's it's an absolute state of grace. Um, and with singing, you know, you are the instrument. And that's that was a hard shift, particularly, I think, being trans. How I dealt with the gender dysphoria for so many years was to just try and squash it down so that I could keep living my life. You know, it was kind of... It's funny, you know, I, I talk about not taking testosterone for my singing. When I was sort of 24, so when I was sort of negotiating this changeover from, from piano to voice... Um, there was no research. And the only stories I'd read of people said that if you take tea, your voice will go completely. You will never sing again. And then by the time that I started having students um, who were proving that that wasn't the case, I had already spent so many years 
sort of training at this point and couldn't afford to take three years out for the voice to settle down. So, you know, if anyone is listening to this and wondering if they will be able to sing again, you absolutely will. But for, you know, for me, it just, it, it wasn't an option. You've written very frankly about about your history with mental illness. Mm. Um, how has that played into your identity? I mean, I try and be really frank about it because, frankly, I think the silence kills. It it just kills so many of us. And again, you know, I I was diagnosed with cyclothemic depression, which we might call a, a form of bipolar now, um, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was. I, you know, without my family, I wouldn't be here. And it was a real struggle to stay alive for many years. And it just wasn't talked about. And again, if you don't know what these things are, you just think you're dying. You don't, you don't know how to, how to put it in any kind of perspective. And you don't know if there's going to be any treatment or if your life is going to be livable. And it's not just fighting the stigma of talking about it. We also need to put money into treatment and care plans. Um, But I cannot bear this idea that mentally ill people are broken or that something wrong with us. You know, we're often in pain. We are often impaired. But it's just who I am. And I, I couldn't divorce that part of myself. You know, I can't get rid of the part of me which has OCD obsessions on a constant loop in the back of my brain from the part of me that's playing music on a loop at the back of my brain. I think it's just, it's how my brain is. And I try to deal with it when it's being bad and embrace it when it's when it's giving me joy. It's interesting that you talk about the idea of mentally ill people being broken, because that's a word that gets applied to trans people oh, as well. Oh, yeah. And I, it's just something <laughs> no human being is ever broken. It's such a terrible, terrible thing. To, to call someone, and I know I've used it about myself when I was feeling, you know, in, in really rough, low patches. It's very upsetting to me, this this idea that we put human beings on a scrap heap, that, you know, we, we talk about so many different people as being broken. We talk about disabled people as being broken, as if they're not being kept down by a society that refuses to, to make adjustments to help people live full lives. You've spoken a lot about the support of your family and how important that's been mm. to forming. Um, you were particularly close to your brother. Yes, yeah. Who you described as your soulmate. Oh, yeah, he, he really is. I mean, I, he died 10 years ago of brain cancer, but I'm still going to use the present tense because I, you don't stop loving people. And I feel really unnatural to me to try and put that into a past tense when that love is a constant every single day of my life. Mm. I mean, his death came at a time too when you were working through a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, I think cancer really puts your life on hold, right? So, you know, I'd come out at the age of 16. At that point, because I don't take testosterone because of my voice, because that's my livelihood and also because I can no longer play piano to a degree that I used to be able to. It was a lot of trying to research what I could access, what I couldn't access, if there were any surgeons worldwide that, that I could see. And it was actually a couple of months before he was diagnosed that I found a surgeon. I was, oh, I was over the moon. I was so happy. Um, And then he was diagnosed and that was my focus was caring for him. And, you know, around that, you know, there were other sort of difficulties and stresses based on societal pressures around that. And because my whole focus of lockdown really to surviving and, and to trying to help him survive Everything else went on the back burner. And then he died and I had a really 
rough <laughs> sort of time uh, than you might imagine. Um, and then sort of emerged from that going, right, well, all those things I put on hold, there's no time like the present. So the next part of your life was really mm-hmm. about kind of negotiating who you were going to be. I think it was more that I knew who I was, I, I knew who I was and, and who I wanted to be. I've been doing my absolute best with that, but I think it was, I think two things maybe, you know, I think when a sibling dies, the the survivor's guilt is very, very bad. And, you know, that's a really common experience. And I just wanted to do as much as I possibly could to to sort of honour honor the fact that I was still alive and I had work to do. So I really threw myself in at the deep end. I went back to university and uh, kicked up my activism again, which I had to leave aside. There was just a sense of there is no time to waste and I have put my own needs last for a long time and I'm not going to do that anymore. So I think more a sensation of, right, let's do it. (laughs) So you... Um, or a young aspiring opera singer in quite a conservative industry mm. trying to find space within that for yourself. Yes. At the same time, you're an activist. Yes. I think it's hard to find a trans person who isn't. Um, I mean, it's hard to find any person from an oppressed group who doesn't have to, to fight and negotiate for their right to be seen as equals. There is no one way of doing it. And I think when you say Activist is a funny, it's a funny term because it makes you sound really self-aggrandizing, you know, and I don't want to sound like that. I think I dip in and out of, of what I do as according to a lot of people. I, I did a lot as a teenager. Um, I co-founded the first national LGBT sort of QI youth group uh, in the UK and did a lot of local activism at school and then sort of with the, the London Assembly and also standing around in the rain with petitions then when my brother got ill, I stopped doing that. And then sort of coming back, mainly through writing, I think, that's hopefully where I feel I can feel I can be useful. So writing and then you do behind-the-scenes meetings and then you write them up and you share them with people and you gather data and you share that and you sort of advocate and you do educational outreach and public speakings. Every trans person I know is advocating for a better world, actually. And there's a beautiful Laverne Cox, I think, said that even just loving yourself as a trans person is a revolutionary act and I think she's a real... She's such a heroine to everyone because of of the way that she models different ways of creating change. So this is something that comes up a lot in your writing, is um, looking for role models, for predecessors, Mm. for trailblazers. What are the role of these other trans figures Mm. in in your life and the way that your politics have developed? Mm. I don't know how to describe it. If you've gone through the world seeing people like you everywhere... I don't know how to to describe what it is to have a complete absence of that. It, it's almost like you're. It's not that you're not connecting with other people because obviously beyond beyond our differences, we have the universality of our experience. But the, this particular aspect of your experience just isn't anywhere to be found, and it's profoundly alienating and it's lonely. So certainly, you know, finding someone like Kate Bornstein. It was like having an imaginary friend, only she was a real human being and she was living in America and she didn't know who I was, but I had read her book and I felt like there was... She calls herself sometimes Auntie Kate online because so many trans people, I think, have come to her and said, did you realise you were you were such a huge influence? And it felt like having a friend at my back. I don't feel that any of the people I looked up to were trying to say, be exactly like me, you know, not in the slightest, but they were showing that it was possible to be. And that was 
absolutely incredible. I um, just finished uh, doing some work with the Photographers Gallery in London, and they have a show of gender non-conforming people, pictures pictures of gender non-conforming people from the 1880s onwards. And, you know, these are found pictures. We don't know who these people were or how they would describe their gender, how they would describe their sexuality, only that they were breaking rules. And I stood in the middle of that gallery with these pictures all the way around the room, and I just, you know, you could have met these people in real life and we would have hated each other. So I'm not trying to romanticize it. And yet the power of seeing something not the same as me, but in a similar enough vein that you could feel among community. The affinity. It's incredible. Mm. Absolutely incredible. How important has the internet been in... (laughs) Almost, you know, I I think we'll be charting the importance of the internet to the rise of sort of trans communities and sort of the explosion of trans activism. That's going to be a subject for historians for decades. For me, it was just transformational. Um, There's so much scorn... For, for things like Tumblr and Twitter and absolutely there can be difficulties of communication and it can lock us into some quite negative communication patterns but it can also, this this feeling of representation you know, something like a hashtag like trans is beautiful I don't think you would have been able to pull me off the computer if I'd been 15 and seen that I mean I just would have been drinking it in and sort of going, people like me, people like me it's always different for every single trans person I think a lot of trans people um, particularly older generations and, and generations in trans years, we often talk about generations as sort of when you come out as opposed to how old you are. Um, and I've noticed certainly that that some people and maybe in particular late transitioners will talk about sort of the sense of moving into who they really are or, or moving from one person to another. Um, I think increasingly you you hear people talking about the fact that, you know, you're kind of always who you are and you just maybe let something show a bit more. Um, and, yeah, so I don't, I don't feel there was ever a place where I was not me. Mm. There were just times where, for example, you know, with pressures from the classical music world to drag up and look very femmy, where I was, you know, more under pressure to do that. And then parts where I got older and just couldn't give a fuck anymore, and I sort of went, no. So... Um, but it was always the same person doing that. It was just a sort of maturing person that, that could then have a sense of where their lines were drawn. Yeah, it's a good way to think about it as an evolving person rather than an yeah. arriving person. We are all transitioning all the time. That's what we do. That's what life is. Um, and I really love that. I love that being trans, again, for me, it's not some side thing. It's not some weird aspect of human nature which is impossible for other people to understand it's it's just another element of who we are we all change and grow i mean we all no that's not fair we don't all fall in love in a romantic sense but i think a lot of us or the majority of us will know just how much love can change us whether that's platonic or whether it's romantic or sexual and you know so elements like that that's a that's a transition to who we are How do you see your role in the community now? Um, I mean, I should be much clearer and say communities rather than mm-hmm. community because there is no one trans community. We have lots of different, lots of different communities, and sometimes we we overlap in a little Venn diagram, and sometimes we're quite separate from each other. Um, and I think, I think we all play many, many different roles, and that's as it should be. Um, so I don't. I think what I've always tried to do, and hopefully what I will keep on doing, is I've had. 
A lot of advantages in terms of performance and in terms of education, which means that I get offered jobs like this. Mm. And it also means that it's fairly easy for me to go on stage and talk to a lot of people because I've been trained to do it. Um, and I think what I'm always trying to do is think, what can I do with the skills that I have and the position I have to try and make things better for other people while also being aware that I am speaking, I will be speaking for myself. I can speak with the insight that I've gathered from friends and colleagues. I can speak with insight that I've gathered uh, from sort of anecdotal research and, and broader um, sort of more formal research. But I can't say trans people are this mm. and trans people want that. We are, trans is an adjective, it's not a noun. And trans people come from every single group of people in the world. So we cannot break it down to, to these simple ideas. But I think within that, if I can be honest about what I know, then hopefully that will lead to a more progressive and constructive discussion. Mm. It's true that, um, that you know, you are from a middle-class background, mm-hmm. you got a very good education, had a very supportive family. That's not the case for many, many trans mm. people and there are a lot of trans people of colour, um, mm. a lot of trans people that, that live outside the kind of, you know, broader structures of society and, and mm-hmm. have that added thing. What's your relationship with those sort of communities? I don't always know how the best way forward is in terms of balancing using your platform and then making sure that other people are heard as well. And I think maybe this is one of the reasons why I started a trans arts night, which has been running now for seven years in the UK, is I figured if I had a literal stage and I could I could share it with people, then then that would do some good. It's where, where do you come down to communities versus individuals and, and sort of what Venn diagrams are you in? So, you know, many of my colleagues are trans people of colour within academia, which is one form of, inter, you know, sort of interlocking experiences. And, you know, many of the trans people I know are middle class, regardless of sort of ethnicity or sort of racial and, uh, racial and cultural backgrounds because academia and music is overwhelmingly middle class. So I, I think it's, um, I think it can be very difficult. Um, and I think it's a lot of the stuff we do behind the scenes as well. And, and again, I would say, you know, Laverne Cox is such an inspiration here is, you know, you use your contacts, you, you use your industry sort of insider knowledge, you try and share back and share back and share back. Um, and I don't know what more we can do apart from this sharing and elevating other people's experiences and, you know, calling out injustice and prejudice where we see it and refusing to take jobs with people who would only, um, you know, I think it's really important, for example, you know, someone like me who is genderqueer, I get a lot of invitations to come and speak to women-only events mm-hmm. and I won't take them and I, I would recommend a trans woman instead. I don't think those event organisers usually go on to contact a trans woman because that's that's their prejudice and that's not what they're looking for. But it is important for me not to take those jobs. And I think it is important for us to turn down things which are unethical within our framework. I I guess that's the thing. It's always trying to share space and and to try and move away from this idea of the singular and into the collective instead. So the motto of your night, the the night that you have transpose, um, one of the mottos is don't make assumptions. Yes. What do you mean by that? It's very easy when we see someone on stage to start trying to put our own narrative on top of them. I think, you know, we do it all the time. We see someone in the street and we start putting them into our own framework. Um, and the magical part of performance for me is that you can try and keep uh, an open, not just an open mind, like, oh, yeah, I have an open mind, but quite literally trying to stay soft and unfocused and let someone guide you through their experiences without sort of going, oh, I've heard this before. I know where this person is coming from. 
And I wanted it, this don't make assumptions, it was really critical for audience members as well, so that, you know, people could come and not have someone go, oh yeah, I know who you are, and put them in a box. But also that people would sit and engage with each other as audience and artists, and that's a really interlocking um, relationship, and try and see each other for who they really are. So you're doing a doctorate at the Music and Gender Identity Research Centre at the University of Huddersfield. Mm. I'm interested in the relationship between music and gender identity. I think the the first thing uh, for me in terms of music and gender is that in the majority of the classical music world, I mean, I, I also work as a as a singer-songwriter and you get it in alternative, I mean, you get it everywhere, but classical music really takes the cake, is that any gender apart from cis male just doesn't exist. <laughs> and I mean, wow, that, again, as a young person, that blew my mind. Um, I remember going to my music teacher at school and saying, why aren't we studying any woman composers? And he said, well, there aren't any. And I think he saw my face and he went, well, there aren't any worth bothering about. <laughs> it's unbelievable. That was in 2002. Um, you know, I went to my undergraduate. We did not study one single woman composer. Not one. We had one female lecturer. It was as if, like, the only way of making music was to be a white cis man. And that's just it. You know, that that's the only music really worth bothering about. And then I went and did a master's, and it was the same thing. And I was just so furious by that point. I started to do my own research, and I came up, uh, across this composer called Barbara Strozzi. And I fell in love with her music. She's a 17th century Venetian composer, and she wrote songs. If you like Monteverdi, if you like Vivaldi, just go and get some in your ears right now. It's gorgeous. I've never heard of her. She was amazing. And in her, in her era, she was the most widely published composer of vocal music. The encyclopedias that were written sort of in the, the 1700s, early 1800s, mentioned her as sort of one of the, the great composers of, of Italy in certain points, and they said she was the inventor of the cantata form. And then nothing. How extraordinary. She Absol- was lost to history. Yeah, absolutely. And written were, out. Yes. And, well, I think that's the thing, written out rather than lost. It's always a, it's not, you suddenly get these 19th century male writers about music saying that women, their brains aren't capable. You, you still hear this now. You still have a lot of popular sort of music writing that, that talks about this idea. So Strozzi became essentially rediscovered. But in that rediscovery, a really interesting thing happened, which is that one early scholar of Strozzi put forward the possibility that she may have been a courtesan. And that's not based on any evidence uh, that we have. I mean, the, the evidence is quite sketchy of her life. But there is a portrait that may be of her, which has a low-cut top. And that has had sort of several people going, was she a courtesan? And from that scholarly question has sort of blossomed this way of treating her in the music press in the most stereotypical gendered terms. So her music becomes now voluptuous, soft, caressing. It's all very, mm, ooh, don't you just want to listen to the sexy, sexy music? Um, And it just really sparked my interest. So I, I thought, you know, we could do this doctorate looking at how our ideas of gender affect what we're listening to and how we approach the idea of the composer through looking at Barbara Strozzi. You know, again, if you listen to her music without knowing either who she was or who she might be, what would you hear? But what are audiences actually hearing when they listen to music by people who are not cis white men? And so often it's simply they're listening to their own prejudices played back to them. We have so many biases, the the unconscious and the conscious, and quite happily flaunted. Um, and music for me is such a... It's such a spiritual thing. It's such a foundation of who I am. And the idea that any of us could be denigrated 
through sort of the, these assumptions in our music making or that we could be locked out from certain elements of music making. Again, I go back to a really eight-year-old point where I just want to flip over the table and start kicking off because that is so antithetical to how music feels it should be to me. Which is in a space that doesn't think about gender. It's just magic. It's it's not so much... It, it's magic. I can't find it. it. It's the universal human language. It's extraordinary. And, you know, yes, it's hugely impacted by society. I mean, obviously, that's how musical trends grow and develop. And yet, it is a pre-linguistic form of communication that, that works in a completely different way to how language works in the brain. And something I, you know, personally really affected me when my brother was dying and, you know, with brain cancer, you often lose linguistic abilities. And he kept his musical abilities and we could still make music together and we could still sing to each other and we could improvise together on the piano. And it was such a humbling lesson in the ways music connects us. It's, I mean, C.S. Lewis always said, you know, when words fail, music speaks. And it does. It also speaks to the extremely profound and fundamental nature of the relationship of human beings with music. Absolutely. Having these terrible, terrible points of mental illness in my life, music was there. Music was where you went to be when being was just, it was, it was so painful. I think a lot of people don't realise how physically painful a lot of mental illness is. It's not something... You know, the mind and the body are not separate things. And that sort of physical agony of of carrying that weight, the the pain in your bones and the pain in your stomach and the sensation that your your veins are sort of throbbing. And I could go and play the piano and suddenly I was in paradise. See and Lester, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you so much. C and Lester joined us at All About Women 2018, and you can see video of their appearance at the festival on the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas YouTube channel. Check the show notes for relevant links, and make sure you subscribe to It's a Long Story in your podcast app of choice. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. This All About Women season is made by a crack team of lady legends, produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Jade Vowles, mastered by Alina Godwin. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, researched by Ellen O'Brien, and our executive producer is Jacqueline Booten. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll see you next time.